0: there's an intellectual curiosity that comes with what food is and where it comes from.
1: Welcome back. This is your host, Heather. Diversity on Fire is on a mission to inspire new thoughts and dialogue by sharing our open conversations on all types of diversity-related topics. My guest today is Lynn Bowman. Lynn is the author of Brownies for Breakfast, a cookbook for diabetics and the people who love them. Lynn has a wealth of experience to share and has been the recipient of awards as a creative director in Silicon Valley and has worked with numerous, within numerous industries. She now lives on a small farm in Northern California with her husband and is known as the glam grandma who gets to help you eat your veggies. Welcome to the show, Lynn.
0: I'm really excited to be with you Heather. You know that we've already talked about it. We we think we're hot stuff, don't we?
1: <laughs> we know we're hot stuff.
0: Yes, because we actually made the connection, we're podcasting and we love it both of us. So, yeah. Here we are.
1: Absolutely. I always start the show because of course my intro about you is really just a super brief highlight reel. So I always like to show to start the show by opening it up and letting you tell us a little bit more about you. It gives us an idea on your perspectives and so if you can share some things like family dynamics, cultural religious background, important things what? that shaped Lynn.
0: Well, you know what? The reason I am talking with you now is we connected over the subject of age, which to me and people are a little funny about it. You know, it's almost like you can talk about religion now and you can talk about money now. Salaries are becoming more transparent and everyone wants to talk about sex all the time and we can go online and do, but age, whoa, right? That's, that's kind of creepy for people. And so, and, and I, I have to kind of color everything that I say by the fact that I'm old and I love, first of all, being old. I'm proud to be old. I feel privileged to be old, but I will be 77 in a month. And in a lot of people's worlds, that's like, oh, dang. That, you know, you're you, you are over the hill, girl, right? You are done. And if you pay attention to how things are phrased out there in the world, things like how to do this and that, if, you know, if you're 50 or 60 But it kind of drops off. You know, you can't possibly want to know how to do lipstick or or remodel your house or whatever after you're 70 years old. You just you can't possibly have any interest in life anymore at that point. And in fact, and I just got back from a medical appointment, um, uh, a PT physical therapy appointment. And, you know, you have to really fight for yourself in the medical community to get anyone to see you as anything other than this old lady. Right. So it's, it's part of the diversity discussion. I think that we have shoved aside and I can't really speak for old men, although I'd like to, in some ways Um, I will speak today only about old women, particularly because we play a different role in society. And I love being a grandma, by the way, to me, that's an honorific. I, I love it. I, it's the most important thing maybe I've ever done with my life was to do those things, which led to me becoming a a grandma. And grandmas are traditionally the carrier of story. We're the ones who pass it along. And we also cook. Um, right? (laughs) Which, uh, as you know, I'm all about too. I don't really love to cook, but I think cooking is as important as anything else that we do in our lives. Absolutely. And I want
1: to get to that afterwards because I have questions about this. But before we jump into that, I'm curious when I'm looking through, right, your, your kind of list, and I'm sure this is not all, and this is certainly is not all that encompasses you, but you had such an interesting variety of professions, makeup artist, screenwriter, legal journalist, wedding planner. Wow. Like what, what um, had
0: your interest in so many different places? For one thing, we did not, I, I graduated from high school in 1964, and we women did not have a plan. You couldn't have a plan. There was no plan to be had. So what we did was we took jobs wherever there were jobs to be taken. And I didn't want to do secretarial work. I didn't want to be a nurse. I didn't want to be a stewardess, as we call them in the day. And I had trained. I My education was more in art um, and liberal arts. So I, the first job that I was able to get, and we used to have, the way you got a job was that there was help-wanted men in the newspaper and help-wanted women. So you, of course, would look in the help-wanted women part and find the most interesting things. And so I had my first job in an advertising agency in 1966 as an illustrator and um, a sort of production artist. And what happens is you just sort of, whatever is available, you... You do, um, that was how we operated back in the day. So if a friend was doing, was working on a movie and said, we need somebody to do makeup. Do you, yeah, I do makeup. Okay, you know, or I, I need, I, I have a walk on here for somebody that, okay, I'll do it. All my friends, I, I was in LA. I grew up in the Los Angeles area, Holly, I was born in Hollywood actually, of all the nutty places to be born. So that, that was the company, Business, you know, that was what everybody was doing. If I'd been somewhere else, it might have been logging, you know, or, or um, hay mowing or something. But, but where I grew up, is was movies. So all of the things that came along, and I wrote screenplays and um, acted, you know, sometimes a very small part. Right, and I was never particularly interested in acting, but I loved being on the set and I loved seeing how things were going and, you know, wanted to be part of my friend's projects and got an education doing that. But I was always more interested in behind the camera than in front of the camera. So as opportunities came up more to do the writing, um, or production part, and then, then I wound up doing more advertising. In those days we were shooting commercials, um, a lot, not so much anymore. And and everyone, it was all about print, which it isn't anymore. But uh, I learned all the ins and outs of, of making a print uh, ad. Very interesting. And, you know, managed to make decent money over the years doing that. So that was fortunate. But it wasn't because I started with a plan of any kind or made a conscious choice to do that thing, because that was going to be a great thing to do. I did whatever I, 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 needed to make some money and I did whatever seemed possible to do, um, to get by. So along the way, you know, yeah. And yeah. I feel like in some ways
1: that sounds more freeing because a lot of times or, or commentary I've heard is that you have to know, you know, in college or excuse me, at the end of high school, what are you going to go to college for? And it's like, your mind is so young at that point. You're making a decision on something yep. you don't even know if you want.
0: And plus now, Heather, we don't even know what is going to be available as employment in five years. And now we're all about AI, right? <laughs> Who knew? I mean, you know, the, we, and podcasting, if someone had said five years ago or 10 years ago, you, my dear, are going to be huge in podcasting, you had gone, what? that's nuts. Who would do that? Uh, The world is changing fast. And a thing that I deeply believe in, by the way, is failure. And the, what we need to be able to do is land on our butt and get up again, no matter what happens, you need to know how to fail, not be afraid of failure, embrace failure. I've had some spectacular failures, Um, you know, a couple of beers, I'll tell you about some of them. Um, But, and, you know they're they're not ever as bad as they might seem that afternoon. You know, uh, it's like when you get up off the pavement and brush yourself off and think about it. It's like, yeah, I hated that job. <laughs> I needed to be fired. Um, but people have become of uh, uh, a different mindset. Yeah, now about all of it, and you need to supposedly have a direction and you know go to the right undergraduate program that takes you to the right graduate program. And now I'm happy to see many of us are taking a second look at even the idea of college, four-year college, grad school. First of all, um, and you have nieces and nephews this age, so you'll probably agree with me, but higher ed is kind of wasted, particularly on 18-year-old boys. I mean, you know, the 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 his little brain isn't even developed yet. He is following other parts of his body around you know. right now. And we spend all this money and all this effort educating kids that are like, you know, I think I'll go to the ballgame. Um, the people who are really getting the most out of educations that I talk to frequently are moms, for example, who are going I am gonna go back to school, get my degree, and it's gonna be in, you know, microbiology and you know, so now these are brilliant students. You know, they're motivated, they know why they got where they are and what they'll do with it, and their little brains have developed now fully and they know what their are. Yeah. And they've lived
1: enough life where making a decision or making that decision is far more informed. So when they're choosing something, they're truly interested in it now, right? Rather yeah. than just
0: click, you know, ticking a box. And I went to UCLA right out of high school, which was a huge mistake. First of all, 30,000 kids, you know, I I was lost. Um, it was a time in my life that was very difficult. My mother died within weeks of me starting college. And I I didn't have my home anymore. I didn't have my dog anymore. I didn't have my family anymore. I was just sort of cast out that way because of the way things happen. But also it was, it was a community. Well, it wasn't a community. It was 30,000 crazy people together on a campus. Um, and I I was just adrift. But as I would go to classes, I would sit there and think, what the hell am I doing here? Why am I, well, I still was using some of my, what little of my dad's money was left. I had a scholarship and it wasn't that expensive by today's standards anyway to go to UCLA. But I, it just didn't make any sense. The word that we used then in the 60s was irrelevant. It seemed so irrelevant, right? But it did, uh, you know, it, it just, and of course the beach was calling, the motorcycles were calling, Uh, I was 18 and I I wanted to do something fun. You know, I wanted some adventure. I wanted to see some things. And here I was on this campus where, first of all, all the other women were blonde. I swear to you, I was the only brunette on the campus. Um, And there was this kind of weird L.A. vibe about the whole thing. Um, So I, I left UCLA with a couple of lifelong friends, I'm happy to say which is the best thing that happens in our higher ed. We we sometimes make a good network out of it. But And one of them, I'll just drop a little hint. I love telling this story because he was a very unusual-looking man. He was extremely tall and thin, and he was a year younger than me. I was by this time a sophomore, and he was freshman. And we connected in English class over what he was writing and what I was writing. And he would bring poetry and all this stuff. And I had no idea that, how many years now has it been since 1964, do the math, that he would wind up holding all these records in the world for being the maybe the best basketball player ever. Because I had never, I didn't go to the basketball games. I didn't know anything about basketball. All I knew was that this guy was an an amazing mind and an amazing soul. And I really connected with him. And in those days, he was Lou Alcinder, and he became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar.
1: Oh, wow. Okay.
0: He, like me, I mean, he, he was a fish out of water, you know, he was so gifted and, and talented and so smart But he was like somebody from another planet. And so was I. So um, that was the best thing that came out of UCLA for me. uh, I'm happy to say.
1: I feel like those are the best connections is when you feel like you're out of place and you can connect with someone else out of place. And it's almost like you give each other a space. Yes. You know, you create your own. You do. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to go to, we haven't talked about, we did actually an episode, um, I want to say in 2021 on food topic. But we haven't done it in a while, so I'm interested to dig a little deeper into this. First and foremost, how does someone who doesn't even really like to cook become a cookbook author and helper of all things food and teaching people nutrition? How does that happen?
0: Well, two or three things. One, I've always loved to eat. (laughs) Okay, well, (laughs) helpful. Helpful. And, so, and A lot of people don't. I mean, a lot of people are really they'll shove food down. They get hungry, but but they don't really groove on the process of eating. And I always did. Um, so that's one, two. I was the single mother of three kids who needed to be fed uh, all very close in age, all, you know, wild and hungry. So there was that. And then three, I never had any money. So I was going to have to <laughs> source the food and cook it myself. And um, so I learned how to do it. And there weren't any other people around me who were going to do it. It was going to be up to me. And in the process of that, you know, there's an intellectual curiosity that comes with what food is and where it comes from. And starting about the time my kids were born in the mid seventies, this kind of new awareness began culturally in the United States around food, starting with, Uh, Shea Panisse, with Alice Waters, with some other people, and Julia Child had been operating for a while, and she was out there talking about what food really was and what it could be. And and, um, there were other, a few other health writers, and of course, Rachel Carson had come. So there was this coming together of thought about food being more than just food. And at the same time, we were kind of silently unaware of how damaging the food that we were buying at the grocery store was for us. We were just at the beginning in the 60s and 70s of this, literally, it's a pandemic of bad food reactions. We have chronic disease just totally out of control in this country. As a result of the crap that we are eating, big food, packaged, processed food. And I'm sure there are people out there still who would argue that that's not a big deal, that that's not really the cause and so on. But there is so much science now continuing to come out about the addictive nature of processed food, sugar, 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 fructose, um, processed sugars and um, high fructose syrups and all these things that go into processed food. I don't think there's really any question that this has caused most of the heartache that's involved with and it's it's not just diabetes or obesity it's um liver disease kidney disease heart disease all these other things that are directly relatable to what you're eating or not eating and if you're moving or not moving and then we also are studying more carefully the chemistry. You know, People didn't understand weight loss, weight gain. There were a lot of assumptions made about it and a lot of kind of judgment put on it that obviously you're this or you're that. No, I mean, we're just finding out about mitochondria and about the, the inheritable diseases that actually cause people to be unable to eat or unable to stop eating and, and they are chemical. So there's all, but underneath all that is that food was sort of women's work. Nutrition was not even a subject worthy of study. If you were studying medicine, you were studying medicine. You were learning how to prescribe medicine. And you were also learning how not to sleep, which fascinated me the more I learned about how important sleep is and how you absolutely cannot heal. There's your, your cells cannot heal themselves unless you are in deepest sleep. That's when you, your cells do that work. And so here the medical schools are valiantly trying to teach their students not to sleep. Right. Well, huh? Um. so it's, it's a bunch of stuff kind of starting to come together now, I'm happy to say, because I'm not dead yet. So I want to enjoy all this. And let's talk about that. Longevity is a new area of study that, that is very exciting. There are a lot of interesting people in the field, a lot of people talking about it on podcasts and YouTube and so on. And of course, a lot of other people are going, well, why would you even want to live a long time? Because I don't want to be old in a wheelchair and so. What we're really talking about is keeping our good health and our good lives longer if we can. Or another way of looking at it is no longer enduring a horrible senescence at the end of our lives. Because I don't know if you've had a conversation about this, Heather, but I, especially the men that I know, they all think they're going to die suddenly in some valiant way they all think that they're going to go off a cliff and a car co- or fall out of an airplane or off a mountain or something or die in their sleep and i can guarantee statistically that that's not so <laughs> that's that's not how you're going to die you're going to you're going to decline honey <laughs> and it could be a long decline and none of us want to look at that you know with- i think that's so fascinating
1: that you just said that because I, so the conversations that I've had, it hasn't been explicitly said that this is how I think I'm going to die, but the, that is the air of how it's convert. You know, that's, what people say. I don't even want to, as though you have a choice, like right. you're going to go with, well, I mean, as a general rule, you're going to go when you're going to go. So the whole point of looking at it in, in the way that you're talking about looking at it is that we do have a choice of, of in a lot of ways, how that looks based on how we behave and the
0: things that we do earlier in life. You bet. Yes. So, and again, you know, I don't want to be judgy about all of it. Although I could be, I wanted to be, you know, I I have that ability. I'm a grandma, right? I could be judgy. People now, what's happening is everybody's hooked up to dialysis machines, right? It's huge industry, dialysis, millions and millions of dollars. Why? Because you're diabetic typically. So, and you, you didn't know maybe you were diabetic and you didn't control your diabetes or going it. And so your liver's gone and your kidney's gone and you're hooked up to this machine. So for five years or 10 years, you're paying an enormous amount of money to be kept alive and your family's driving you there and they're dealing with, and they're feeding you and they're, and that's. Your senescence. That's how you are on the road to death, right there. And I don't know about you, but that's not what I want. No. And if I have a choice, and I think I do, I'm not going to choose that. And I think that an, a, a really solid scientific argument is being made every day, many arguments, that you do have a choice. I'm someone, I was diabetic. And technically, I'm still diabetic. If I fall off the wagon, if I'm naughty, if I don't behave myself, I'll be diabetic again in a heartbeat. But right now, my blood glucose is right down with normal. I'm I'm normal, whatever that is, Right, as normal as a grandma can be. I'm normal. And I did that. I made a decision that I was going to find out how to do that, and I did it. And I've helped other people do it. And I believe that many, many, many more people can and should do that for themselves and for their families. People don't think about what ill health costs in money and time, in grief, in productivity, in every measure. What what does it cost for your sorry rear end to be in bad shape because of your own choices? It's your family that pays that cost. Uh, You know, you in a way, but it's the caregivers. It's the people making up for what you're not able to do.
1: So you said you've, well, you've essentially figured out how to manage. And I'm just going to use this word. Although you said, if you're bad, if you're naughty, you might get knocked off the wagon. But you've essentially found a way to reverse that diagnosis for yourself effectively in the way that you live your life. So when did you get that diagnosis and how long did it take you to navigate that?
0: I got, I knew because Heather, I had gestational diabetes. It was decided after I delivered a 10 pound baby boy um, and had gained 60 pounds of the pregnancy. In those days, they didn't test you for a lot of things and the docs were all men. So it was a very different situation. Um, But I was told that I probably had gestational diabetes. And so I needed to watch myself. And if, and as I got, To be forty or so, I would probably develop type two diabetes because I that looks like a hereditary thing in my case. So I was watching it, and and my mother had died young, as I already mentioned. And so I had a real sensitivity. I had three little kids, single mom. I was not going to leave them. I was not going to be absent in their lives. And so I would ask to be tested, and people say, "Well, you're not overweight. You know, you're okay. You're young. It's all right." And then finally, someone gave me the test, a hemoglobin A1C or whatever it was at the time. And sure enough, I was in diabetic territory. So I started learning wrongly, rightly. I mean, I got some shitty advice. I, you know, I, I read some stuff and was kind of figuring my way through it. Um, they didn't even give you, in those days, they didn't give me a, a glucometer. I had no way of testing myself. And I had to ask for that. Don't you want me to do this? Isn't it? You know, I, I had to keep pushing because I was young. And well, or by diabetic standards, I was young. And another dirty secret about medicine, docs never expect you to comply. They don't expect you to take your meds. They don't expect you to do whatever they tell you to do. And typically you don't. They don't know how to get you to do it in many cases or they don't have time to include that with what they do, especially now. I mean, they you know, they've got 15 minutes to see you and then it's bye bye. And then you get sent to a nutritionist or physical therapist or whatever. But um, I was determined to Kind of figure it out and to do, do the best I could with it. And I'd ask a lot, of, I was an annoying patient. I would ask a lot of questions and push to get more tests and figure out what was going on. So it became a study for me, a curiosity. And of course, I'm also just, you know, what are we going to say? I, I was a pest, right?
1: You were an advocate for yourself.
0: Thank you. I was an advocate for myself and for my children. So, uh, I kept my weight off pretty well, which in diabetes, that's what, you know, it's like, if you could just lose that weight, you know, if you would just get the weight off, then you'd be okay, which there's some uh, discussion to be had around that. But um, I did all right. And then I had a a real bump forward when I went to a uh, a conference in 2019. This isn't that long ago. It was the Plantricians conference, and it was docs from all over the world who heal with food, and which made them renegades. Uh, you know, these were guys. Some of them are names. You know, T. Colin Campbell, you might know his name, or um, Dean Ornish had been uh, reversing heart disease for a long time. But they were they were not mainstream medicine. They were kind of on the outer edge. And so I, of course, had to go to Oakland to this conference and see them and hear them. And it blew my mind, Heather, because I mean, I watched those powerpoints for from eight in the morning till eight at night for five days. Not a thing I love to do, but it was fascinating to see the data that had now been accumulated by these people about food and disease, food as medicine. and so I uh, I walked out of there a vegan, which I hadn't been, but I decided to experiment with myself. And for a year, I did not, for the first six months, I can absolutely tell you that I had just been tested. So I had all my fresh blood work and everything. And for six months, total vegan, didn't slip off the wagon one time. And my numbers improved in a way that they had never improved. Suddenly, I, I really had a drop in hemoglobin A1C. And so that was a head turner for me. It's like, whoa, there's something here. I will tell you, let's skip to now. I am not vegan at this point. I absolutely support anyone who is. My cookbook is written so that if you are vegan, great. This tells you how to be a good one, a smart one, a healthy one. Uh, Because so many people who are vegan are eating crap. They're eating sugar and processed flour and so on, which is not going to find health for you so uh, and i've I've experimented with more of a just a plant based kind of vegetarian thing. I've experimented with adding fish, and I now actually i also did a brief stint as a carnivore just to see <laughs> because there are a lot of people out there, and I'm the only person stupid enough to be my own um you know subject for this research. but there are a lot of people out there on YouTube and everywhere talking about carnivore being the optimal human diet, and then you'll tr- change the channel, and here's a vegetarian guy going, this is the optimal human diet, and then you'll change the channel, and the vegan guy's like, this is the optimal human diet, so my next book <laughs> is going to be about who's right, and it's it's all fascinating to me, just fascinating, and especially because here we are thinking we're so smart about going to the moon and, you know, AI and all this stuff. And we don't know what the hell to eat still.
1: Oh, I'll tell you what, that, that speaks to me so much. I I actually love to cook. Interestingly though, I, I love to cook for other people, right? So I won't like do a whole cook if I'm only myself, but like, it's interesting how many times in my full adult life, I think to myself, I have no idea how the hell to feed myself. And there's so much information out there and everybody's right and everyone's wrong. And it took me a while to realize that maybe vegan's right for you and it's not right for me. Maybe carnivore's right for you and it's not right for me because I'm, I need to find what works for me that is maintainable and consistent and not what you think I should do right
0: now. And with all the paleo, keto, all this... First of all, this is this is a granny book about. Okay, here's what you eat. This is what you eat, and essentially, Heather, it's eat what you have, eat what you can get that is well sourced and and from a solid source. Don't eat poison. Don't eat crap. Eat real food, whole food. That's it. And we are all different. And you're going to find that you're happier eating more of these particular kinds of dark green vegetables, and that you really need to avoid those fruits because you're going to have a reaction from those. That's what food is. We, our genetics dictate that that our guts are not all alike. And our environment dictates that our guts are not all alike. Because we're taking in signals all the time from the bugs that are out there and the microbes that are out there and the birds that are pooping on our dirt and All of it is information for our microbiome, our body. And we are all different. We're not all the same. So um, it's been a a fascinating study for me. uh, And please come to my house and cook for me if you love to cook. Um, And I actually, I don't mind cooking, but there's so much else. I mean, I also like gardening and riding horses and, you know, playing with my grand. There's so much available to us now that I don't know a lot of people. We women used to be in the kitchen all day. Grandmas were, were stuck in the kitchen all day and all night and cleaning up after everybody. I don't want that for myself. I don't want to be stuck in the kitchen. Sorry. Yes,
1: I completely agree with that. And it's interesting going back to what you were saying about, you know, this, this event you went to with the doctors, my friend is currently going through breast cancer. And she, we shared that on on a couple episodes ago and she is going through chemo and she decided she, she had done some, she's, she's a very informed person in general. And she's a she likes science. She trusts her doctors, but she also said, you know what? I did a little research and it looks like there's, there's anecdotal evidence that if you do fasting around your chemo treatments, you actually can avoid some of the major symptoms that people talk about. So let me let me give it a shot. She, she did that and the reaction that she got with people, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're doing it. It's wild to me how far off people can go when you're just trying, you know, why not try something? Why do we have to subscribe to one person's opinion on something, you know?
0: And particularly a lot of these guys on the YouTubes and so on, they're gym rats. You can tell they spend half their life life trying to get pumped up in the gym. And of course, the first thing I think is why don't you go rake some leaves or, you know, build something? What a waste of everybody's time for you to be, you know, spending your life in a gym in front of a mirror. Um, so that's my prejudice. But um, the, the whole idea of and I don't like the words intermittent fasting, because it's really not intermittent, and it's really not exactly fasting. But um, the, the time, the problem, Heather, is that Americans particularly eat all the time, they eat all day and all night. And what the science will tell you is that your body needs a gap of, of 12 to 18 hours, at least, between your last meal of this day and your first meal of the next day to do the stuff it needs to do. The autophagy, have you discussed autophagy? It, I love that word. And and it, it's such a fascinating concept and it makes so much sense. Your body needs to clean itself. It needs to heal itself, but it can't do that when you're throwing down pizza at 11 o'clock at night and it has to process the pizza. It's like, oh, dang, we were going to clean the veins here, but now we got to do that pizza. No, you have to stop eating for a period of time so that your body can do the processes it needs to do. And people are different. You know, that's a kind of a different uh amount of time for different people. I'm a big believer in eating during the day, which I have the privilege of doing because I'm a grandma. And Ayurvedic medicine and other practices will say the same thing. You should eat when the sun is high. You should eat in the middle of the day. Well, that's just not practical for so many people living here now. But if you are going to eat your larger meal in the evening, make it at 6 and not at 9. And go to bed at (laughs) 9. Go to bed at 10. Sleep. You know, also Americans, they're eating too often, eating too much, and sleeping too little.
1: Yeah, I I recently um, started doing my own. Well, close to a little bit before when my friend got her diagnosis, because we're close to the same age. I, I'm. It's just it's kind of a scary thing, right? So I started doing some research, and I came on the topic of autophagy, and I started looking into it, and I'm like, this is fascinating. So I was like, okay, the first, the first fast I did was four full days because I'm testing it. And everybody was like, oh my goodness. And I'm like, what do you think is going to happen? I'm going to be okay. Like (laughs) there's plenty available, like it's okay. But people, because like what you said, we're so used to the constant and it's, it is a cultural thing too, because it's like, you know, morning, noon and night. And of course there's all kinds of different things, but.
0: And diabetics we're always told to eat frequently frequently. Yes. day, you know, and, uh, sorry, no bad idea.
1: Yeah. I I'm fascinated by the topic. Um, and I think it's really, I don't know why people aren't more fascinated. Well, maybe I do. I have my assumptions, right? I think the assumption is, is that most people will take the, um, path of least resistance, right? Whatever's easiest, which is how we got us. Ourselves into the sad diet, you know the sad right. American diet, and and how we got processed foods because it's easy and it's convenient.
0: Yep. Yeah, and somebody has to cook something. Somebody has to make some actual real food, or you're not going to be healthy. So, um, my quest was to make it easy and fun for people. And the whole idea of the brownies breakfast is that those brownies are made from lovely, real, whole food. They're made from pumpkins, nut butter. Um, and a thing I want everyone to know about—it's a bad name, very badly named—I should rename this. Allulose is a terrific sugar substitute. It's allulose great. Allulose. In, and I've people are talking about it that I didn't expect to be talking about. It's like, yeah, that doc is on board with this. Yes, allulose is uh, I highly recommend anyone who is wanting to quit sugar, and I hope you will, everybody. It's a great way to transition off of sugar. And um, and so my sweets in the book, I have uh, donut recipes, brownie recipes, cakes, pies. They're savory things too. It's a whole complete book on eating. But most of us fall apart when it comes to the sweets. And you should be able to have treats. And so these treats were developed so that they're a meal, whether it's for an 85 year old grumpy granddad or an eight year old kid on her way to school, they are nut butter, pumpkin, eggs, um, allulose, uh, baking soda, uh, cinnamon. Oh, cocoa. Great food. That's the brownie. So it's a meal, nothing bad. It's all good. And it's delicious. Who doesn't love a brownie for breakfast, lunch, dinner? And then donuts, same kind of a recipe. They're not, there's no flour. There's no oil added. There's no sugar. It's made out of real food. But you put it in a donut pan and you bake it instead of deep fat frying it. And then you, I give you recipes for pink frosting that you can put on it. And there are sugar-free sprinkles that you can buy to put on it. Because yes, we need our treats. We need our, you know, lovely food that we look forward to eating but you need to make it yourself sorry although i have two friends who have taken these recipes and then riffed on them and improved them in some cases sorry to say they're better cooks than i am and one gal in vacaville california who is selling these not every day i think she she's open for like four days a week selling sugar free gluten free healthy donuts and making it you know doing really well and then a gal in upland california in southern california same thing she's making gorgeous sweets for diabetics who come who've never been able to eat these kinds of things and they're thrilled right and and they're they're good food you can do it and if you find these women and, and if you go on my website i'll i'll give you their addresses you can contact them and have them ship you some, I think. But uh, the the easiest way to do it, the least expensive way to do it is to just... And let's talk about money. People are going into Starbucks and spending four, four and a half bucks on poisonous food, right? Food that is going to make them sick. And, and complaining about how much healthy food costs. Stop it. If you make... These yourself, they're, they're 35, 50 cents a piece.
1: Yeah, I've never understood that when, when the complaint that healthy food is so expensive. I've never understood that. I really haven't. Because whenever you come out of the grocery store and you've shopped the produce section, you can come out with bags and bags. You know, of course, if you're going in and getting like 15 dragon fruit, like the, over here, those are really expensive. But.
0: But then a arugula, big bag of arugula, two bucks, right? And you can eat several days out yeah. of that. Yeah. And I laughed about when the pandemic hit, people going, Oh, the shelves are empty. What are we going to eat? You know, and I would talk about being totally alone over there in produce. It's like, Here I am. There's plenty of celery. <laughs> There's lots of lettuce and cabbage and um, kale. Come on, come on over to this aisle. We're good.
1: Well, that's not the path of least resistance though. You have to yeah. yeah, you have to be willing to learn how
0: to use it. And it's not hard. Mm. It's really not hard. It's pretty easy. And in my recipes because I'm a lazy cook and a messy cook, my recipes if you kind of mess up and you don't measure it quite right, it's okay. It's still fine.
1: It'll you know, work out. But- you know, another thing that you um another thing that you have mentioned is like hormone balancing. So I'm curious mm-hmm. what you've learned about that, that I think maybe because of my age, I've been hearing that more often and like fix your hormones. And I'm like, how do you even know what your hormone, like what's even the sign?
0: <laughs> okay. Here again. And I'm sort of ranting. I know. But because men don't go through menopause, even though it's called menopause and we kind of wish they had to go through menopause, Um. Th- medicine has not paid really any attention to the fact that women have this disruptive, difficult, often period in their lives when their hormones change dramatically. If men had this, there would be over-the-counter things up, I mean, there would be shelves of things to fix this. Uh, But because it's females, it was like, oh, honey, shut up, you know, uh, you're whining. So very interesting, Heather, the cover cover article in the New York Times today was about hormones and menopause. Yes, it's finally news. And what's interesting is um, I have a friend, Dr. Selma Rashid, that just put a book out a couple months ago about this, and we've been talking a lot um, about it because women need to know, and I'm happy to start spreading the word with her, that a lot of misinformation got spread a number of years ago about hormones and the fact that they, to a tiny little infinitesimal degree, made a blip on one study that a couple of women in a billion woman study got breast cancer. But the numbers were misinterpreted. They were Discussed in a way that wasn't clear, and all of a sudden, people were living in fear of estrogen causing cancer. So now, fast forward many years later, people are saying, "Wait, those studies were really flawed. That was stupid, and this and that." Because now, because I'm sorry, and this is my, this is. Grandma Lin's theory, we now have a lot of women in medicine, more women graduating from medical school than men. So all of a sudden, these women are going, wait a minute, <laughs> this is crazy. And so now we're paying attention again. And there's also a big one of the products that came out of the earlier attempts at uh, hormone therapy was Premarin, that was made from horses' urine. Well, now what we're talking about is bioidentical hormones hormones that are chemically the same as women's natural hormones. And they are not, you can't ingest them and get a good effect. You can't stick them in your nether regions and have them, you have to actually um, apply them to your skin in order for them to be processed the right way and take effect. So this is something you're going to be hearing a lot more about. I am not an MD. I'm not an endocrinologist, but I know some and have lunch with some um, and, and hope to be working more with Selma and others like her, because this is a thing that women need to know about. So um, it's Dr. Selma Rashid, if you want to look her up and look up her new book, um, R-A-S-H-I-D. And um, there's some very exciting stuff coming out. Now, Here's my interest in it. You never hear it's, So this is for women who are 40, 50, starting into menopause. And then they've done some testing on women who were way past menopause in their 60s. Is there anything out there that even includes a discussion about women 75? new? No, they must all be dead. Or why would they care about hormones? Because they're so old, Right. That is
1: really sad. It is really sad to think about because it's not true for so many people, especially in your 70s. I think baby eyes, as you get older you start to realize, oh that's not as that's not as old as I thought it was at one point. <laughs> and and it's like there's so much vitality and especially if you live intentionally, right, into right. late life. You know, right. I I lost my grandpa a couple years ago. He was 88 years old and he only died because he got very ill suddenly, but had he not, you know, he would have still, and he was still driving. He's still living alone doing, Oh, he was just living his life. People don't, for some reason, there's no acknowledgement that that happens. You just kind of slip over into. And then it
0: changes. Yeah. Yes. So, um, and in my case, um, I, when I was working with Selma on this, I wanted to experiment it with this particularly, again, I'm the only subject, cooperative subject that I have. So uh, that was interesting to me. But in my case, it was bone health, because what what women my age are constantly hearing is, well, honey, you know, your bones are becoming very fragile. And if you have a fall, it's going to be the last fall you have. And that'll be the de- beginning of a terrible decline. And then, right, right, right. You know, you've heard all that same stuff. And I, I'm i a horsewoman, <laughs> cowgirl. <laughs> And so uh, I didn't want to hear that. (laughs) I didn't want to not be doing what I wanted to do because I might break a bone. And in fact, I am not writing these days. I wish I were. I miss it. But keeping your bones healthy is a thing that we think these hormones are going to be very effective doing. And they don't have the downside that the Fosamax kinds of things do. And you've heard about the the kind of icky side effects of some of those bone health prescription drugs. They, I'm not
1: sure that I have.
0: Oh, um, people lose their jaws. I know. Okay. So look it up. Okay. <laughs> not a pretty picture. will will um, be taking those. <laughs> yeah. Um, most of the, uh, some women make a choice to do it anyway, and it's not all, you know, but the, uh, big pharma, mm, you know, you have to really be paying close attention when someone prescribes a medication for you very close attention uh i've been prescribed medications for high blood pressure i didn't have high blood pressure and you get it home you wait what is this why do they wait i have low blood pressure yeah but if you're a diabetic you're supposed to no 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 so um we have to be our own health advocates all the time
1: yes yeah i i Appreciate that sentiment so much.
0: <laughs> yeah, um,
1: there. I feel like we could keep going for a long, long time, but I do have three final questions, and then maybe we can reconvene again in the future.
0: Um, final, Heather, please don't say final. Okay, I hate that word.
1: <laughs> three, three questions to close out this particular conversation. Is that okay, okay, right. <laughs> okay. The first one is um, I always ask the guests to. Leave listeners with an action item or a tool. So for, for what we've been discussing is food and dietary needs and preferences, what can something everyone listening do today, and hopefully again in the future, um, to, to be more inclusive of people who have different de- dietary needs and preferences?
0: Oh, shoot. I thought I had an answer for you. And then you said, inclusive because of course, my answer is quit sugar right now. Uh, can we say that's inclusive of everybody?
1: Well, if everybody, well,
0: if everybody should
1: should should quit sugar, then yes. it's a That's the
0: thing that we all share. No one should be eating sugar. Nobody. And of course, then the other thing is everybody buy my book. That's inclusive. It's there's learn how to rest- cook. Well, you don't even have to learn how to cook. Just do what it tells you. It's so easy. Step, you know, it's it's real cinchy. It's full of big fat photographs, um lots of color. I mean, who doesn't want to make this? Look at That looks amazing. Yeah. So those are two action items. Quit sugar and then buy this because this tells you how. Uh, And then where were we? What were we talking about? Well,
1: and then there's the next one is I ask you to give me five words that would describe yourself in this current phase of life.
0: Ooh. Joyful, pesky, free, fun, um, tough. Love it. Love
1: it. That's perfect. And then where can everybody go to connect with you? Can we, should we send them to your website?
0: Yes. Lynnbowman.com. Just be sure you spell it L-Y-N-N-E-B-O-W-M-A-N. And there's a, there's a list that you can sign up there and I hope you will be. And I don't, I don't send out a lot of stuff, but if I get a, a tune up on a recipe where I want you to change the temperature on it and get another effect or, or different ingredients, ideas, new recipes, I will send them to you. And um, infrequently, don't worry about it. It's like once a month or once every couple months, but I, I like hearing from people. I like getting pictures of what you make from the book. It helps me a lot and it gives me meaning and, and then ask me questions. There's a, a contact form on my website, that I look forward to hearing from, from people, you know, ask me questions about diabetes, about sugar, about eating, about anything that you think um, would be helpful to you. I, I love talking to people about how to get their kids to, to eat. Right. Um, and, uh, and my advice is probably a little different than some people's advice. So uh, parents particularly, I'm all about it and want to help you and support you uh, love hearing from people. That'd be great, lynnbowman.com.
1: Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. I This is so fascinating, all of it. I appreciate your insight and your sharing and your willingness to share all of the things and being a 77-year-old and coming on here because we need more of you to show up and say, hey, PS, we're still here.
0: Thank you. Yes, we do. Yeah, grandma, unite. <laughs> <laughs> Rise <Love that>. <laughs> Amazing.
1: Thank you as always for listening in. I hope this episode helped you see a new perspective. I believe through conversations just like this, we can all set fire to our ignorance and rise from those ashes together as better humans. Don't forget this week's call to action. Check the show notes to find links on how to get to Lynn's website and buy her book where you can learn some simple and easy recipes that are also healthy whole meals. As a reminder, the thoughts and opinions that Lynn and I expressed today, they're ours. We do encourage you to do your own research and come to your own conclusions. Connect with Diversity on Fire on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Diversity on Fire. If you've enjoyed this episode, I would very much love your support and feedback. Head on over to whatever platform you use that allows ratings and drop us a love note. Don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you're listening now so you never miss an episode. Definitely also share this conversation with others that might find value. And until next time, don't forget to check your bias and keep the conversations going.